Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon, and my special guest today is Terry Tripp, whose career has not been a straight line of working at tech companies. Instead, it's been a path across several go-to-market motions like B2B and B2C, along with some recruiting. So Terry started his career at NCR. Then he moved to PTC for six years, where he was the regional sales director. After PTC, Terry spent eight years as a recruiter and owner at Management Recruiters International. After MRI, Terry decided to jump back into sales at Performance Assessment Network, then Delaflower, and then Select Minds before joining BMC for five years as an area sales director. After BMC, Terry joined MuleSoft for nine years, where he quickly climbed the ranks from regional VP to CRO, Chief Revenue Officer. Today, we find Terry Tripp is the Chief Revenue Officer of Tynes, T-I-N-E-S, Tynes. Welcome to the podcast, Terry. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Thank looking, you. Looking good with that pink background. Hey, you got to sport the brand colors, man. <laughs> That's brand colors? Yeah, we're check us out, man. We got pink, we got purple. We're everything that's like anti-traditional security space for what we're doing. Disrupting. That's why I wore yellow today, just for you. <laughs> hey, Terry, why don't we start by you uh, giving us a quick overview of Tynes? You got it. You got it. And by the way, thanks for uh, having me. It's a privilege to be here. And thanks for the background. It's kind of a checkered background as I listen to you say it. So, man... <laughs> uh, a little, little frightening here in, uh, in, in playback mode. But listen, uh, again, excited to be here. Tynes, T-I-N-E-S. Uh, we are a uh, early stage uh, high growth company. We are in the security orchestration, automation and response market, S-O-A-R, SOAR space. At the end of the day, we are disrupting that with some really innovative approaches to a pretty well-established market in the cybersecurity domain. And really what it means is we are helping customers solve some of their most critical problems in the cybersecurity domain, which is being able to more rapidly identify risks, uh, orchestrate what they need to do when they identify a risk, remediate that risk. And so we're really helping them do things in a much more automated, efficient, scalable manner than what uh, traditional approaches have been. So we're off and running. We're having a great time. Why don't you walk through that? What was that? Source again? Tell me what that stands yeah. for and walk me through what that really means. Like. Yeah, SOAR. S-O-A-R is the acronym. And it's uh, Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response. And so if you can imagine pretty much every organization out there, whether they be big, small, old, young, cloud native, or old established companies, including government sectors, everybody's 
struggling with a few different things that we help solve. One is obviously in cybersecurity, the, the surface area of the attacks is growing exponentially, mm-hmm. right? And they can't, those organizations absolutely cannot find and hire enough security professionals to handle that. So as a result, they have a plethora of different technologies in their tech stack, dozens and dozens of different solutions in the cybersecurity domain. Getting those tools to effectively share information, to talk with one another, to then act upon what those, you know, those tools identify is a very difficult, laborious process. And we are helping companies do that in a much, much more automated and modern way. So that's where the orchestration comes from, orchestrating the interfaces between all these different products and then automating some of the discovery. Is Do you give the executives like a dashboard that shows like a high level view of all these systems working together? Is that what Tynes does? Yeah. You know, we, we have uh, we have uh, playbooks, stories, we call them, that really help automate some of the, you know, the most common, most critical workflows. So we have pre-built integrations with certain systems. We have the ability to, frankly, integrate with any tool that's out there that's got an API. We're doing it through a very much more modern, uh, no-code-based approach to be able to do that. So you hear the expression of low-code, no-code. We're doing that type of an approach specifically in this SOAR market. And then, yeah, we provide like the insights, the analytics, the metrics to help companies understand, you know, where are these, where are these events occurring? What's the resolution time? How do they solve them in, in less time? All kinds of key uh, business KPIs as well. Great. Okay. So you walk into Tynes on day one as a new CRO. And this, you, you could talk about this mainly in general terms also. It doesn't have to be Tynes. But typically when you walk in as a CRO, you, you want to know what challenges you're going to have, you know, you're going to face. So what are the top three things as a CRO when you walk in the door on day one you want to learn immediately? Well, I, um, I say this with a smile on my face for anyone from Tynes who's listening. Uh, we're based out of Dublin, Ireland. So the first thing I had to learn is what the hell are these folks saying? Cause I could hardly understand them. <laughs> you knew where the Guinness was though. I knew where the Guinness was. We, we, you know, all the pubs and the pints were clearly, uh, right, right nearby. But look, I think when you step into any role, uh, in a CRO capacity, and this was true for me as well, I think for me, I placed emphasis and priority on number one, the people. I absolutely needed to get to know the team. Uh, and that meant literally one-on-one conversations with every single person in my organization. Now we're not huge, uh, but that was still dozens and dozens of conversations. I wanna know who they are, what they're about, what makes them tick, what their goals are, their ambitions. I wanna hear what they have to say about the current state, what's working, what's not, et cetera. So the first thing for me is really getting to understand the people and, and frankly, having them get to understand and know me as well. So that was priority one. And I would say that that's key, no matter what kind of new role you're stepping into. For me, then it was really a matter of digging in deeper, obviously through my due diligence of, of uh, evaluating different opportunities and choosing to go to Tynes, you know, you're talking with customers and investors and things like that. But the next thing I want to do is kind of do a little bit of a deeper dive on what are customers really doing with our solution? What are the problems they're solving? How painful are they? Why are they trying to solve them now? Why haven't they solved them previously? Or if they've tried previously, what's, what's wrong with that approach? 
So I really wanted to get into the, you know, into the shoes of our customers and understand really what's driving them to, to, to tackle this problem and choosing to tackle with us and then get feedback from them along the way that, you know, I could take back to our product or our, our go to market uh, team, et cetera. So that was priority number two. Number three, I was, I was also through really both of those first two items. I was trying to listen for and identify what are maybe some, some early unlocks, some, some kind of blockers that maybe we could tackle, I could tackle that would allow us to maybe have some, some quick wins, if you will, some things that maybe were just holding us back unnecessarily that would really help propel us with some, some, um, some good growth. So I was looking for obviously a strategic view, but also looking for some near-term opportunities in the process. Those are the three things I was focused on. Yeah. And when you walk into these things, especially when you walk into like a startup or almost any startup, what did you know you wouldn't find? <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew I probably wouldn't find like um, perfection anywhere, you know, early right. on something's broken, you know, whether that's something in the product that's not yet up to snuff or, or what have you. I think what I was really prepared for to not find is was really like a repeatable sales process. You know, when it's a young organization, uh, again, we're, we're early, early growth. It's really, you're trying to win business all over the place. You're trying to win all deals. Uh, you want to really get your, your flag planted, get, you know, logos captured, et cetera. And as a result of that, it is a little bit of the wild west. And so I think what I found and was expecting is, you know, not like a crystallized machine factory of a repeatable sales process. And then that turned out to be true. And again, that's not bad. That's just the reality of kind of an early company. No, it's really typical. Like you said, a lot of times you're first doing product market fit and almost anything can happen at that stage. And then you're just trying to do deals and you're trying to take anything you can off the street. And some people at that stage are like really artists. Some have their own sales process, but overall is usually not a built-in well-defined sales process with some discipline around it. So that's pretty typical that you won't find that, you know, when you first walk into a startup. Yeah. So you did say that it's important to have a well-defined sales process. Tell me why you believe that's true. Well, I think that, um, again, as you mentioned in, in the beginning with some of the different experiences that I've had with, you know, obviously working at places with your leadership and, in different stages of, of growth and different sizes of organizations that fundamentals, you got to get everybody that's kind of speaking the same language. You, you got to get everybody. And that doesn't just mean on the sales and the account teams. Ultimately, that means, frankly, the go, go to market org for sure. And beyond that product org, et cetera. So one, I think, important part of a well-defined process is everybody understands what it means when a deal is at a certain stage, what it means when we use certain terminology as we're talking about deals and where they where they live, et cetera. Um, I think as you get in the mode of trying to grow and scale, it becomes more important even because you've got to have that framework that everyone is anchored around. You've got to be able to, to know that best practices are being largely adopted and followed, you know, no matter where you are you know, in the market or in the world, et cetera. And so it's really, I think the, the, the lever that starts to propel the growth and the repeatability and kind of the, uh, you know, the best practices around, around the sales org. 
Yeah, I think it's also important for training. You know, if you have a well-defined sales process, you kind of know where or what step or what stage of the sales process that some of your people are having a really difficult time. And then you know, okay, if they're having a tough time finding a champion or getting an economic buyer meeting or something like that, you know exactly what to train them on. If you don't have a well-defined sales process, you can't really see any patterns. 100%. I, yeah. Absolutely. And and I think the, the good thing about having that process, and if you've again, got good, clear criteria for each stage that you can measure and really pay attention to, you can kind of marry what you're seeing at, at a little bit more of a macro lens, along with what you're hearing from, from the street, what you're experiencing when you're on calls with the team, or what you're hearing from your frontline managers or the SE org, et cetera. So it's a great way to kind of bring those two together and look for those enablement opportunities that that probably aren't isolated. You find it somewhere, it's probably happening somewhere else. And it's an opportunity to kind of bring that enablement up, up to the org level as a whole. Right. You start to figure out what's working and what's not working. The other thing, um, especially in, in your job is if you, if you don't have a well-defined sales process, it makes it really difficult when you're talking to people to figure out what's my forecast. What am I going to forecast to the CEO? Yeah. Yeah. Um, hundred percent on that too. I mean, I think you've got to have things that you know that as you look across your deal portfolio, your pipeline, your current quarter forecast, next for, next quarter forecast, that you have confidence that if you see certain deals that are at a certain point in that process, if we're, you know, true to those, to those criteria and, and the stages along the way, gives you a much higher degree of confidence and certainty in being able to predict and forecast that business. No question about it. No. And the other one you mentioned was scaling. If you want to scale, like when there's going to be a stage where times is going to say, okay, we're going to take a whole bunch of money. We're really going to step on the gas and going to hire an enormous amount of salespeople. And when that happens, you need to have a well-defined sales process because you're going to start promoting sales reps to managers and managers to second line managers. And they all have to basically run the same playbook. If you don't, it's like helter skelter. It becomes really difficult to forecast, really difficult to understand what's going right, what's going wrong. How do I train people, enable people? You just can't put your hands or your fingers on what's going, what's going on when something does go wrong. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you don't have that, like you said, you don't have that insight, you don't have that, that ability to kind of look across the org and see what's working and what's not. And you probably end up just chasing, you know, problem after problem. It, it, you know, it's kind of that whack-a-mole game. You might see something somewhere, you solve it. And then unbeknownst to you around the corner, there's another issue because it's being done differently or someone's not following what you really want them to follow. So it makes it a heck of a lot harder as a sales leader at whatever level to really kind of drive that consistency if you don't have that well-defined process. Yeah, especially when you don't have that much time in a quarter. Everybody thinks the quarter's 90 days, but at the end of the day, it's probably 62 with all the weekends and holidays. So you don't really have much time to turn a bigger number or much time to figure out what's going right and what's going wrong. So it's really difficult. Yeah. Now, as you think about the sales process, what do you think are some of the most critical steps or stages in the sales process to ensure success? Yeah, I mean, uh, you could argue each stage is uh, is a critical and important stage, but in my opinion, uh, it's really what I would say is the first third of the sales cycle. Let's call it stages one, qualification two, maybe discovery, and three, scoping or solutioning. I think that's 
that to me is the most important. I, I really feel in, in a, certainly in a technology oriented sales motion, I think, and maybe outside of technology too, John, but I think that that's where the deal is really won or lost, to be honest with you. I think, you know, so much of what gets done in the first third of the sales cycle just tees up what's going to happen through the remaining two thirds. And, and the remaining two thirds is frankly a, a validation, if you will, of what was accomplished in that first third. And okay. So let's go into some of those. So the first, you mentioned really three qualification, which I think you're really referring to whether or not you want to play or not in this account and then discovery of the account and then scoping where you're starting to build um, a decision criteria and you're starting to build, um, you know, metrics around the customer's pain and what potential value that you can bring. So you want to talk about, you want to go over a little, yeah. each. like let's talk about qualification first. What do you like your people to, to do in that first stage, depending upon whether or not they want to play in the account? I think there's certain, it's it somewhat in, in my experience depends a little bit on, on the, on the, nature of the lead, if you will, the nature of the opportunity. If somebody's coming and knocking on our door, it's something that's more of an inbound. We probably have a slightly different qualification lens on that inbound opportunity. You know, what's driving it? Why are they coming to us? Try to understand a bit more about the problem they're trying to solve. Uh, you know, certainly if we can uncover things around timing of their thinking about solving the problem, maybe again, funding or budget available for the project. Those are things that I think we would probably try to explore if it's coming to us. It's slightly different if you're doing an outbound motion mm -hmm. and I'm trying to get somebody to realize they've got a problem and realize they've got a pain. At that moment in time, it's probably less about qualifying. Do they have money and all that? Because they may not because I'm the one bringing some intellectual property, if you will, to the conversation, getting them to think about it. But generally speaking, I want to know by the time we leave that qualification conversation, and it's usually more than one, frankly, is there agreement that there's enough of a problem that is worth solving? And are they prepared to go and solve the problem? That's probably a, the way I would summarize the qualification. Okay. And then on discovery, how much discovery should a salesperson do before they enter the account for the first time? I think they should do a, you know, a, a good amount. Honestly, I think you've got to show up and you, you've got to show up with an informed hypothesis. We used to call it a PPOV, a provocative point of view. I like that. You've got to show up with a PPOV because if you just show up and, you know, it, it's clear that you haven't done homework, it's clear that you don't know their company or their industry or their competitive position in the market. I mean, everybody sees through that instantly. They know you're just, you know, smiling down or you don't care enough or whatever the case might be. So I think an AE, and, and again, it's not just the AE anymore. It's our, it's our BDR team, our SDRs that need to have a, an informed point of view. It's our SCs that have to have an informed point of view. You've got to show up and understand what is likely to be the current state, the consequence of the current state, et cetera. Um, you can't just show up unprepared. So yeah. however long it takes somebody to get to that point, they got to do the homework. Yeah, they have to do their homework, but then you differentiate yourself as a salesperson. So where should they find, for people that are listening in general, where should they find most of that information before they go into an account? Well, in this in this day and age, uh, the, yeah, the world, a lot the world wide now. web is a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> the old days, I don't know, was you go to the library and figure it out. But uh, <laughs> right. No, I mean, you, you look at obviously if it's a 
certainly if it's a public company, there's all kinds of information out there in a public company, earnings reports, 10Ks, CEO letters to shareholders. You know, there's probably uh, investor day reports, which are a great way to, to dig in even beyond you know, like the canned, uh, canned stuff. Even for our organizations that aren't public companies, there's still a ton of information out there, you know, uh, online through, you know, through just good old fashioned research. I love figuring out what's going on from either um, competitors, you know, to the, to my customer, to my prospect. What are their competitors doing? What are they saying? Right. What, what are some of the challenges that they might be facing? Because the company I'm working with is probably facing similar challenges at, a, you know, at least at an industry level that give me something credible to show up and talk about. So on the PPOV, provocative point of view, which I, mm-hmm. I like that terminology, mm-hmm. When your people walk in, do they understand things like the use case, potential pains, the persona they're talking to? They have almost built like based upon past customers, like a preliminary or basic ROI. And then they might have like some customer success stories of customers that had the same issues that they, that, that their customer might have and then can tell them about the, you know, before and after scenarios. What what do they sh- they should pre- prepare for in a provocative point of view? Oh man, we're gonna do. You're gonna say that three times fast by the end of this conversation. <laughs> I'm struggling right now. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Listen, I think that uh, they should. You, I, I think of it this way. It's kind of like the inverted pyramid at, at the top level. If I don't know anything about the target account, I should at least know what's going on in the industry, and I should be able to show up and talk about pressures, challenges, opportunities, etc., going on in the industry. Next layer down in that inverted pyramid, if you will, is I should know something about the, the account, something about the company, basic stuff even. Are they growing? Are they not growing? Are they are they in second place relative to the competition? Were they once in first and they're going the wrong way? Just things about the company that would help me, again, form that PPOV. Then if I keep going down the pyramid, what organ, what department within the company am I talking about? In our world, we're typically talking in the in the security domain, in the CISO's world or in the CIO's world. What are the pressures a typical CIO or CISO is facing? So I can at least tailor my messaging to be at least persona based. Even if I don't know anything about John McMahon, the CISO, I know what a typical CISO or CIO is feeling and pressured with, et cetera. But ideally, all of that is done and I can narrow it down to what's actually occurring with that target organization. But at a minimum, I should be able to show up and talk about industry, account, and persona-based point of view. And then, yeah, and typical case, problems You know are what solved, use cases right. you're going after. So you know the use case, right? So you know For some sure. of the pains involved in those use cases that you can speak specifically to. Or, you know, ask a provocative discovery question. Right. I love being able to reference what we're seeing across other customers and organizations. And you're exactly right. So I can say, you know, hey, we're seeing this typical problem, this typical challenge at companies like yours that we've been working with. And I would reference either the names if they're referenceable or I would just anonymize it and talk about leading companies in a certain industry. But being able to show up with, again, a credible point of view around the use case, the pain they're probably suffering from and the consequence of that pain is a great way to really, again, bring your experience and credibility into the conversation. And hopefully that is what then opens up the dialogue, both in that meeting and then, you know, multiple conversations from there. And in that dialogue, that's where you're trying to discover and maybe add, delete, change 
to some of the findings that you had before you walked in the door, right? And then try yeah. to expand that discovery where you might now start to move, maybe not on the first meeting, but certainly on the second meeting, start to move into what you referred to as like the scoping stage, where you're starting to quantify some of that pain, quantify some of the benefits. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because, you know, if I can show up with some of those, again, hypotheses, the provocative point of view, odds are I'm probably going to be pretty close to correct given our experience and our knowledge of the space, uh, you know, and other customers. But if I'm not, it gives a, that prospect or that account an opportunity to, to correct me, frankly. Hey, Terry, we're not actually struggling with that. Oh, John, what are you struggling with? So it does open up that conversation. And so now I can start to tailor what we're doing as we move into that scoping conversation, the scoping stage, solutioning stage, so I can start to really now narrow it down and be much more specific about the problems we're going to help solve at that particular company and the ROI, the business value, the business outcomes that we're going to help that company achieve when we solve it. But right. imagine again, through all of that, how we show up differently, how we show up more credibly than an unprepared, you know, comp competitor of mine, et cetera. Yeah, and that's that what I just want to show a demo and hope that the customers, you know, connect the dots, which is yeah. almost impossible, almost never works. You're just selling features and functions at that point. Yeah. And you're you're really you're rising above the fray. You're whether you know it or not, you're probably really building a champion that ultimately you'll test as the process, the sales cycle unfolds. But you may not even know it. But because you're showing up credi credibly, because you're talking about things through the eyes of the customer and, and their problems and their payoff of solving the problem, you're probably building a champion along the way. And that's where, again, I say, I think the things that you do in that first quote unquote third of the sales process really are where the, the deal is primarily won and lost. Everything else after that is just, you know, execution. Yeah. It's a hundred percent because what you're really trying to do as a salesperson is set the decision criteria you know, control that decision criteria so where you important. have your differentiators in the criteria. And the only way to do that is like you said, qualify the customer really well, do really good discovery, scope it out so that now by this point, you've locked down the decision criteria with your differentiators in them that match perfectly to the customer's pain points. Hopefully you've built a champion at that point. And now you, you're doing what you want to do as a sales rep is start to lock out the competition. Absolutely. And again, the the uh, the beauty of that, if you're doing it, you know, effectively doing it well, the customer and I don't mean this in a manipulative way whatsoever, but the customer doesn't even realize that that's taking place. They don't necessarily even know that you're establishing what's important or not important because you're linking it to their business problems. You're linking it to the to the payoff and the ROI that they're trying to achieve or the you know, how you're going to help somebody be happier in their job or whatever. And, and, oh, by the way, the byproduct is we've locked out the competition. I've set the decision criteria. I've probably built urgency into the sales cycle, right? All those things are getting done. And, and then when it's the end of the sales cycle, you know, I've got the data I need to go and put a, put the, put the hammer down, if you will, without them even realizing that, that we've got it. Right. Cause when the competition then does come in, then they're constantly asked about, do you have this differentiator, that differentiator, which is already in the decision criteria? It's going to be pretty hard for the competition to to change that. Yeah. And this, you know, yeah. So you're locking out the competition. You've established what's important and why it's important to that customer. Again, I think what happens is you really do set the 
the pace of the deal to a large extent, the urgency of it based on, again, how painful you've made them realize this the situation is and how uniquely qualified you are to solve it. I think when it gets to the quote unquote negotiation stage of the deals uh, of the sales cycle, the pressure you might feel from a negotiation and a discounting perspective is lessened because you've done a great job establishing value early on and you have the confidence to kind of hold your ground. Uh, you know, and so I think again, a lot of the things at the end of the process are all driven by the front of the process. Yeah. What you're alluding to is through this process, these first three steps, really two steps, because you're qualifying whether or not you even want to play in the first part. But the discovery and the scoping leads to getting a champion, controlling the criteria. And if you're getting a good champion, chances are you get into the economic buyer. So from there, it starts to go downhill where you can really, you know, leverage everything you did in the first third of the process to to gain control over the rest of the process and make sure that you have a successful POV. Yeah. And I love that you said POV, to be honest with you. Um, obviously the industry normal term is POC, but I think at that point you're really, it is the V meaning validation versus, you know, a concept because we're beyond conceptual stuff at that point. And it's really about validating yeah. everything that we've been talking about. We're validating that we can get them from current state to future state. We're validating those unique, differentiators, those unique capabilities that we've talked about and have got them to agree are so important that they actually are done, that we can prove it. I think it's also ideal that you can not only prove and validate the technology and the solution, but in that POV stage, you're also validating the business side of it too, right? So you're gaining the agreement that yes, not only did that technology do what you told me it was going to do, and it's amazing and best thing since sliced bread, but on top of that, you're gaining the agreement that it's actually going to deliver the business value that you've been talking about as well. So it's really a POV of both technology and business. 100%. Yeah. That's where you are proving that you're going to bring value um, in addition to you know validating that your product actually works. So yeah, yeah 100%. So let's, let's go up a level to the top of the sales, overall sales process and Talk a little bit about, you know, conversion rates between stages. Do you look at those? Do you look at the velocity or the time between stages? And, you know, what do you, what do you learn from understanding those types of, you know, metrics, conversion rates, velocity rates, those types of things? Yeah, um, we, I do. And we do look at all that stuff. I just as a, a self-inflicted humor statement, you know, because I've been around for a while back in the old days. You didn't have all the fancy metrics and analytics and all that no. to figure it out. You just kind of knew it somehow in your gut of what was working or not working. And, and uh, fortunately, we've we've come a long way in that regard. And right. we actually have the ability to have some of those. But insights. at the end of the day, it always goes back to the same thing. Do you have a champion? Did you lock down the criteria? Did you get to the economic buyer to set the criteria for the yeah. POV? You know, because if you don't, again, it goes back to your original point. If you don't do those things up front. It's just not good. The rest of the process is out of control. Yeah. And I've always thought, you know, when once you have that champion and have locked down that criteria, at least for me, I always felt like the sale moves from being unpredictable to predictable. Like I walk in, if, you, if you're not in control, don't have a champion, don't know the criteria. Every time you go to the account, it's something different. Mm -hmm. But once you have control over those things, everything becomes very predictable. Your life becomes manageable, you know, yeah. I could sleep yeah. at night. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, 
But I agree. So, you know, to answer your question around, do we look at that stuff? A hundred percent we do. Um, and again, both with, you know, great analytics. And that's one thing that I think has evolved over the last several years is the importance of strong partnership with like your rev ops, analytics, commercial ops team to help provide you the data to, to probably substantiate what you know in your gut, but it's great to, to have the actual data. But we're looking at stage conversions from one to two, two to three. We're looking at uh, stage duration data. Where are we? Where are we getting stuck? Where are we getting you know held up? Are there patterns that we can see? And then we certainly try to look at it both from overall macro, you know, uh, funnel analysis, if you will, pipeline uh, quarterly reviews. I love looking at it also from not just wins but also losses when you start kind of really trying to pull that stuff apart, like you said. Did we get, did we fall short somewhere? Is there a pattern developing where we're not building champions strong enough or we're not, we're not getting deals from our right ICP? That's another thing we would look at, you know, in this kind of post quarterly review. Are we getting the deals where we think we should be getting them from? Or are we chasing stuff that we shouldn't be chasing? So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of insights that you can pull from that you should hopefully be paying attention to and making some adjustments. Uh, it's another reason why you need uh, some discipline around the different stages in the sales process. Otherwise, that stuff doesn't work. Yeah. You need your people to be honest about really what's going on. Yeah. You know, why are you winning? Why are you losing? I don't think if you don't, you know, it's obviously the age old expression of, you know, you can't uh, you can't improve what you don't measure. So if you're not really paying attention to it, you're just kind of, you know, guessing for the most part. Um, so you, you do got to you do really have to measure the stuff and figure out where you're where you're strong and where you're weak. Yeah. Hey, along the lines of KPIs, talk to me a little bit about, you know, what you monitor during the quarter and then what you what KPIs you might review once the quarter's complete. Yeah. Uh, within the quarter, the stuff that, you know, um, it, it varies a little bit as a, you know, maybe in a CRO role versus a frontline sales manager role. But again, I'm in a company that's small enough that I'm probably doing both, to be honest with you. Uh, so within the quarter, I'm probably paying attention to KPIs and metrics that are really going to help me have, as you've already said, confidence and certainty around the forecast and the business that I'm predicting and, and forecasting to the CEO and to the board of directors, et cetera. So those are going to probably be things that are more specific around medic is, you know, is the way that I would be looking at that. Do we have the quantified metrics on key deals that we met economic buyers, all the things that medic, you know, instruments. That's probably a key thing that I'm paying attention to for in-quarter deals. If I look more beyond the current quarter and I'm trying to pay attention to other KPIs, I'm looking for other things around, again, like um, deal data, pipeline data. Are we getting the right kind of pipe? Is it coming from the right places? So I call it pipeline profile. You know, what's the makeup of that? What's the ASP? Uh, what impact are, is our partner channel alliance team having? You know, so I'm looking at a lot of things like that. Ultimately, for me, it's, you know, comes down to on the sales side, productivity. What's the performance of the AEs? What's the performance, uh, you know, on, on the AE level? Participation rate, meaning like who's hitting their number, who's not? Who's building pipe and who's not? What kind of results are those folks having? But I'm also looking at it for other things, again, like the deal data. How do we do against our, our new business target? How do we do against our expansion target? Right. How are we doing on the renewal side of the house? You know, are we get what's our renewal rate? What's our attrition or our churn rate? So those are things that you got to be paying attention to as well. Yeah. So you've been around for a while. 
And now what's ingrained in Terry Tripp's thinking or methodology that might have been in the younger Terry Tripp, but it wasn't ingrained as hard and fast. Like this is something that I absolutely have to do. This is something that's so important that it has to be done. What's now ingrained in you that was kind of there before, but you didn't really understand how truly important it was. Uh, probably many things to be honest with you. I think uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same, doggone it. Yeah, right. I think that there's a couple of things and, and you knew they were there. And again, I'm fortunate to have come up through the different organizations and the leadership that, that I did uh, work underneath and, and, and with, if you will, there's no getting around fundamentals when doing the fundamentals well, mastering those exceptionally well. And, and that's everything from messaging and narrative and sales process fundamentals. So everything that you could put under the fundamentals category, I think I knew that as a younger Terry trip, but I probably just didn't really absorb it and understand the importance of it. I just kind of lived it without knowing, uh, and, for the most part, I probably didn't live it on occasions as well, but but for the most part, I think there's that. As you move up in the sales leader roles, frontline and beyond, again, everyone tells you the importance of hiring and hiring A players and keeping the bar high. So you know it, you hear it, and you never would disagree with it. But being honest and true to that, when you're under pressure to get the team, you know, headcount goals, when you've got an empty chair, uh, there's a lot of pressure there. And so I think you definitely, the sooner you can realize and not cut corners on that one, I think the better off you are is keeping the bar high, hiring A players. And the challenge, I think, in a growing company is how do you do that when you're really trying to grow and scale with, with velocity? That's where the real challenge shows up. Yeah, it but really is. Many moons ago, I learned at one of our former places of employment that no breath is better than bad breath. <laughs> so true, though, isn't it? Yeah. You got to hire the right person. It's, leave the chair empty rather than put the wrong person in it. No yeah, question. sure. Because you can't buy that time back. Earlier, you talked about productivity, but in most enterprise sales organizations, it's at least six months to productivity. So if you put the wrong person in the chair, it's six to nine months before you figure out, okay, I've made a mistake and I'm going to have to own up to it. Yeah, it was really wasn't the right person. So now you get that person has to leave. And now by the time you find another person, you get them in the chair and it's another six to nine months before they start to really ramp. You you basically lost almost two years. You do that enough times, you know, you're not going to have yeah. a job. No yeah. question. So it becomes yeah. it becomes mission critical. Let's talk about that a little bit. You spent eight years at MRI. You did a lot of recruiting right now. You're doing recruiting, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, finding those A players and some of the things that you're looking for to make sure that, hey, I really do have an A player. I'm comfortable hiring this person. Yeah, um, I think you've got to you've got to really obviously understand what's the role that you're hiring for. In this case, let's say it's a sales role, a sales uh, individual contributor role. But I think regardless of the role, you have to identify What's the individual going to need to do? What are they going to, have to do exceptionally well from like a skill behavior perspective? And you've got to make sure that that's being tested and validated through your interview process. So to me, it starts with really understanding what someone's going to have to do and what it's going to take for them to be very, very successful in the role. 
I think at the end of the day, there's no getting around. Someone's got to have some smarts. Someone's got to have some both IQ and EQ. And I honestly think EQ has probably risen up the ranks over my career in terms of importance, to be honest with you. Yeah. Tell me about that. Why? I think, you know, when, when someone's got that emotional intelligence, the empathy, the ability to kind of relate and understand what's going on, both within their own org and certainly within the customer's org, it's a, it's a big game changer in their yeah. individual success, again, both internally and externally. And I don't think early on in my career, I really appreciated the importance of that. Yeah. So back to the hiring profile, I think they got to well, have the well, eye. Just on that, you know, there's so many times that I have seen really smart people, but they get in a room and they just can't feel the room. They can't feel like, like I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I could exactly tell what's going to go down now. Right. So, yeah. And they can't feel it. And they start making comments that are completely opposite of the feeling that you, you, everybody that has that, that EQ can feel is going on in the room. I couldn't agree more. And I think, in my opinion, it largely starts with self-awareness. If someone's not self-aware, it's going to be really hard for them to be aware of even what's around them in the room, as you say. So, you know, somebody's ability to have that awareness, that understanding, that appreciation for themselves as a starting point, but then those around them and what the dynamics are in the room. Yeah. Super, super critical. Um, I feel like you've got, again, you've got to have, uh, curiosity. I think everyone talks about that. I, I would hundred percent agree with curiosity and I love trying to figure out what does that mean? How do you figure that out? How do you test for that? And a lot of it's during the recruiting process, the interview process, what are the questions they're asking throughout the process? What homework have they done on us? Uh, how's their follow-up? Do they bring a different point of view or something unique when they follow up? You know, so there's certain things that I'm personally looking for during the process that helps me understand their level of curiosity. I think somebody's got to be coachable and be willing to coach as well. Because again, if I'm scaling the org at some point, that person might be in a leadership role. So I look for examples where they've actually been a coach or can can be a coach as well as where they've been coachable. So I put both sides of the, the coach uh, word, the, both sides of the coin into that. Uh, I think those are a lot of things. Obviously, you're looking for just good character, good integrity, ethics, drive, competitiveness. You know, I if I can't I, I can't put the fire in somebody. They got to have it themselves. All those are, right. are absolutely necessary, core fundamental characteristics. So true. So I um, had asked you about what's ingrained in your thinking and methodology. You talked about fundamentals and the importance of hiring. You know, a players, but I didn't. Then I then I took you down the tangent of you know, hiring a players, are there, is there any other things that are, you know, now built into Terry trip that weren't built into the younger Terry trip? I think, uh, in, to, in today's, and it's really not just today, it's been a, several years compared to when I was earlier in my career, the importance of collaboration, alignment, and cross-functional selling is much different today than it was, you know, earlier on. You know, like when I started at, at PTC and, and you know, somewhat even at, at still like BMC, it was largely the AE and the and the SE or the application engineer, we used to call them back then, right? right. That was really the, 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 the relationship. Now it's so much different and so much more broad-based. You know, you've got to have great alignment on vision, purpose, priorities, accountability with your 
your BDR teammates, with your marketing teammates, field and, and, and otherwise on the marketing front, with your channel and partner folks, with your SEs, customer success. That didn't, that role didn't exist, you know? No, client so, success is huge these days done uh, right. So the ability now to, to work effectively, you know, with and through others internally, and then have that show up and manifest how you show up in the marketplace and in front of prospects and customers, I think is a big difference of Terry trip today versus Terry trip yeah. early on. How do you coordinate across all those different um, departments or stakeholders these days? How do you, how do you, how does Terry trip do it effectively? Probably poorly, but uh, I would Probably say everyone um, did, did, did it or yeah. does it poorly, but you try, you try. You try. I think, look, I, I mean, you know, effective communication has to be one, but what is really, how do you measure effective communication? I mean, yeah, I think, you know, uh, and it becomes more challenging as the organization grows and scales, you know, at some point, you know, the, the, that even that cross-functional team can sit around one table. And over time that, you know, that table has to be pretty doggone large as the organization scales and grows. So I do think it is some of those important things around communication, which is clarity of vision, agreement on the goal and, and, you know, how each team of those cross-functional teams is contributing to achieving that goal. What's the role, the responsibility, who's accountable for what? So there's certainly a lot that goes into it around alignment of vision, alignment of goals and, and accountability. But I think then what shows up, which we did pretty well at my, at my prior place at MuleSoft, which is having that operating rhythm, that operating cadence. Yes. Making sure that everyone shows up when they need to show up. They understand the purpose of showing up. We're course correcting as a team when, when corrections have to be made. So it really then comes down to that operating cadence. Yeah. And I also think um, the force management command of the message is really important too, because when the rest of the organization understands what it is that the sales rep is discussing with the customer across the table. It's easier for marketing to run air cover. It's easier for development to understand, you know, what are they truly talking to the customer about? What are those issues? How do I play into there? What types of features of functionality should I put into the next, you know, couple releases? to basically enhance those differentiators like we were talking about before or mm -hmm. extend uh, differentiators or bring a new differentiator to the table. So I think those types of things become really important. They're communication methods, but they're super important. Yeah. Yeah. No question about it. Fundamentals, John, fundamentals, do them well. Do them well. What else? What about your, as you, Sales leader, your priorities. Like you have yeah. priorities for the quarters, obviously making the number, right? <laughs> Beating the number is preferable. Beating the number. That's important. Beat the number. Yeah. I Give think there's a couple other top priorities, just even two or three. I love looking. Uh, one of the things that I've tried to uh, emphasize with sales leaders that I'm you know, leading that, I, that are part of the team in particular I try to simplify things and come up with arguably probably corny little expressions or acronyms. I, I have got this thing that I call the three P's that I try to get sales leaders to be focused around. Okay. And the first P is, is what I told you I started with when I, when I arrived at times, which is people. Number one priority is people and everything that goes with that. That's hiring and recruiting the right people that we've spoken about. 
That's coaching and developing people. That's how do we onboard those people. That is helping people be the best they can be. And that also means performance management when performance management, you know, needs to show up and finding a different role for somebody that may or may not be within the company, right? So everything that you would put under the heading of people is the first thing that I try to get our sales leaders to be thinking about. The second one, again, we've talked about it. It's really about the playbook, having a consistent, repeatable way of running the business. Mm -hmm. And if, if we can get people to subscribe to that and really believe it and own it, Again, everything becomes not easy, but easier when we have that playbook and we and we actually execute the playbook. And the, and the third one, I can't get away from the importance of pipeline. You could argue the pipeline is part of playbook. You could argue pipeline could show up elsewhere, but I think it's so important I make it its own P. So everything about pipeline. And you know, as you as you move higher up in the sales leadership ranks, you think about pipeline maybe more strategically, maybe more of like a general manager of your business than a frontline leader. But in any chair that you're sitting in, you've got to have a never ending eye on pipe. And is it the right pipe from the right places for the right use cases? So, you know, you're going to show up and win. Right. We've all seen the problem with having, you know, a small pipeline, whether no matter what level it's at the rep level, the first line, second line, third line, fourth line, People just start to hang on to deals because they don't have any other pipeline. So they hang on to deals and tell you all the reasons why it's going to close. Right. <laughs> and disaster is imminent at the end of the quarter when they start dropping those deals out two weeks to go, two days to go. And then right at the last day of the quarter, because they never were deals. They right. never were qualified. Why? Because they didn't have enough pipeline. So. I had to talk about some deals. I'm going to talk about these deals and convince my manager that that's pipeline. And yeah. it's really not. It's not the even forecast. The, the forecast quickly turns into a hope cast in that, in that scenario. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly. not good. That's not good. Yeah. We've yeah. all been there. Well, good Terry trip. Thanks yeah. For doing it's been fun, this. man. There's a lot of lessons learned along the way. I look at, there's one thing I'd love to share if you don't mind, which is, sure. I think, you know, um, Again, I think of some of the great leaders that I've worked with and for, uh, yourself included, but many others. One of the things that I think I didn't realize I was doing early in my move into sales leadership, which was, you know, at a fairly young age, to be honest with you, is I felt like I was just trying to be the manager that I was working for prior. Mm. Mm. I just tried to, you know, um, mirror copy what that individual was doing. And I did that for a while. Before you know, without probably even realizing it. And so if there's something that I would love to share and, and say it's a lesson that I've learned is you you can emulate somebody, you can take best practices, but I don't think you should necessarily strive to copy somebody. I think you've got to be authentic. I think you got to be yourself. And in doing so, I think, A, you'll grow a heck of a lot more because you'll figure out what your real strengths and areas of growth opportunity are. Versus, you know, what, what somebody else's might be that you're just replicating or copying. But I think you also in that process, you, you really build such a stronger connection with your teams when they know that the real Terry is showing up, the real person is showing up, the trust, the credibility that, that comes with that. So that's one thing I'd say is, you know, find somebody that can be a role model and a mentor, but you got to be yourself. Yeah. I agree with you. I've seen that happen in many organizations where people just aren't themselves. They're trying to copycat 
somebody that's up above them. It do, it isn't authentic. It, f- it doesn't feel right. Everybody could feel it. It's like a self, like a Geiger counter. You can tell that that person's just not being authentic. And um, yeah, it just doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Just be yourself, be original, yeah. be authentic. Cause that people can feel that. And then like you said, they'll gravitate more towards you as a leader. Yeah. I think that's, that's really critical. Yeah. No Thanks question. for bringing that up. That a lot of people make that mistake and it, and it's not bad to have a mentor, but I've always felt like everybody is kind of like my role model in the sense that if you have a mindset of I'm always learning, like I'm going to be a student of the game, then I can learn from Terry Tripp. I can learn from a rep when he's given a for him, him or her given a forecast. I can learn from the marketing people. I can learn from everybody. So I felt like I was always taking a piece of hundreds mm-hmm. of people because they just, they'd say something or do something. And I think, wow, that's brilliant. I got to try to put that in my, in my playbook. Right. Yeah. So there could be some people that also only get mentored or only have one role model and, Maybe that's okay. For me, it really didn't seem to work. I, I like to take the best of the best of the best, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's where I think, you know, as somebody, if they can, if they can find opportunities to, you know, either to make moves within their company to, to be a part of a different team or a different industry vertical, or to, you know, maybe take a, take over a different geography, et cetera. I think through all those different moves, they get exposure to different things and they can, again, see examples of, of what's working and what's not, and they can make it their own. Um, so, you know, that kind of broader base of exposure and experience can be super helpful for somebody too. hundred percent, hundred percent. Thanks for bringing that up. That was pretty big of you. Yeah. 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 I love it. I get all kinds of little nuggets that, you know, most people throw in the trash can, but I'm glad you liked one of them. <laughs> well, we'll have to have you back on so you could share some of those tidbits with the, with the audience, but yeah. Terry, thanks so much for taking your precious time on a critical day in your quarter to spend some time with me and the audience. Really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks. My pleasure, John. Truly. It's a, it's my privilege. It's an honor to be on, on this with you and thanks for doing what you're doing. So many of us continue to, to learn hopefully. And, and I love these myself. So thanks for inviting me and it's been great chatting with you. Thanks Terry Tripp. And thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of the revenue builders podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 